Good morning. My name is Judy Horton. Today's scripture reading is Ezra 5, 1 through 17, which can be found on page 392 in the Black Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own or know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one of the Pew Bibles as our gift to you. Again, that's Ezra 5, chapter 1 through 17. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At that time, Tatani, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tatani the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows, To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the, in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us, We are the servants, servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished, but Because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt and that the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon. These Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. From that time... Until now it has been in building, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, it seems good to the king, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. The word of the Lord. My name is Sergei Marchenko. I am indeed your pastor. 
So I'm happy to be back, and uh, it's just been, um, it's been so good to come back and um, see you, and just want to let you know I love you, I missed you, this is great, great to be back. Thank you for helping my family while I was gone, really appreciate your help with that. Uh, I'm going to make one announcement, and then we'll dismiss the children. Uh, we will have our first Engage gathering tonight at 6.30. And Engage is a time for us to pray and worship together. It's very simple. We are creating space and time for us to come before the Lord and experience His grace together. So let me, I don't want to build it up too much, but it's probably going to be the greatest worship gathering ever in the whole wide world. So if you are interested in, in receiving a blessing like that, I, I encourage you to come. And we, we've been talking a lot about renewal and, and restoration. And this is one of the ways you can experience that, being directly in God's presence. It's going to be Christ-centered and based on Scripture and really trying to draw us into the presence of God so we can experience the work of His Holy Spirit. So please come and worship and pray. And then afterwards, we'll have cookies and, and drinks and it'll be a fun time to spend together as well. All right, so children between two and eight years old are released for children's church. If you're new, you can send your children that way or go with them and there'll be somebody to direct you where they're supposed to go. We've been looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, I've been taking it as one, one book, really, the way many Christians have taken it over the years. It's the same story and we've been looking at it as a way for us to examine what it means to experience renewal and restoration as God brings it into our lives. There are three themes in Ezra and Nehemiah, and I'd like to recap that a little bit to help us see how to us. The three themes are the law, the temple, and the city. So as the exiles are coming back from Babylon, there's a new decree, and now they're able to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild their lives by learning the law again, rebuild the temple by learning how, what it means to worship God, what He demands of us, and then finally rebuild the city. God used various leaders to accomplish those three goals. Now, how is this relevant to us? Well... Many of us, if not all of us, are engaged in a sort of rebuilding. Some of us are rebuilding our lives. Maybe you have experienced a, a tremendous life change, a crisis in your life, and now you're picking up the pieces. You're trying to figure out what it means for me to live a life differently now in the aftermath of what, what's happened. And so we need to relearn, many of us need to relearn what it means to live according to God's will. All of us here at Chatham are rebuilding the church. We're trying to figure out how we can be more effective in making disciples of Christ here in our, in our church, in our community. So we need to figure out what it means to rebuild a community, a church, a temple that worships God. And then, of course, some of them, many of us, are very much concerned with the larger community and its problems. So we want to bring restoration and renewal to North County and the greater St. Louis area. So as we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, we're trying to understand how a genuine 
renewal can happen in our lives, in our church, and in our community. So today we come to chapters 4 and 5. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. We'll jump around the two chapters. We only read chapter 5, but we'll be referenced in chapter 4 quite a bit as well. As you look at this part in the story, we find that there are many obstacles facing the exiles. Remember the initial excitement following the decree of Cyrus. Cyrus had just taken over Babylon, established a new empire, and he released the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. They got to Jerusalem and the first thing they did, they built an altar. Josh preached about it last Sunday. They, they offered the first sacrifice and, and really rooted their new life in the sacrifice to God and of God as we look into the New Testament. So a lot of good stuff happened. And then discouragement and fear set in. Construction of the temple stops And for 15 years, nothing is really happening. They're not building anything. They're just kind of living their lives. The reason for that is because they've encountered opposition from the people that live in that land. The Jews are excited. They come back and they say, we're going to rebuild the temple. We're going to rebuild the city. We're going to repopulate this land. And the people who are there say, we are not particularly thrilled with this idea. And so we're going to try to deter you from your purpose. These people are what we call the Samaritans. They're the people that were left in the land, especially in the northern part of the land, in the former kingdom of Israel that was centered in Samaria. They were left there by the Assyrians. So it was another empire a couple centuries earlier that took people into exile. And some people were left there. And then new people were brought in. So people from all over the the Assyrian, the Babylonian Empire were brought in. Why? To establish long-term loyalty to the new empire. So they mixed with the local peoples. And they worshipped God of Israel, of course, sort of the local deity that was supposed to be worshipped. They were afraid that famines would come and wild beasts would come, so they worshipped the local deity. But they also worshipped all sorts of gods and sacrificed to all sorts of people or all sorts of deities. And so the Samaritans, who were now rooted in this land, they didn't like the idea that the Jews were going to rebuild. And so they, they provided a lot of opportunities for conflict and opposition, and the Jews were discouraged. They were fearful, and they stopped building altogether. So how does that apply to us today? I think it sounds very relevant to me. Maybe, like me, you get inspired on a Sunday morning or perhaps during an engaged gathering and and you resolve to make significant changes in your life. Maybe in your walk with Christ, maybe in your relationships, in your family life, maybe in your work life. And so Monday you are still excited. And then... What happens is what we call in the business Tuesday. (laughs) And by the time Tuesday comes about, you're already discouraged. The excitement is gone and you realize just how hard it is to make those changes. How hard it is to start praying again and start reading scripture again and start 
doing things in your family and at your job that are meaningful and that God wants you to do. And so throughout the week, you're wrestling with guilt and you're wrestling with discouragement and shame and, and you feel horrible about yourself because you'd, you'd made all those resolutions and nothing is, is happening. So maybe you feel like that even today. Or maybe you go to one of our equip meetings and you catch the vision of making disciples at Chatham. And you come home and you get out your journal and, and you write down that you're ready to become a disciple maker. And then a few weeks go by and people that you have hoped to disciple seem to be avoiding you. And you realize that you are, you are totally inadequate in addressing complicated life issues. And on top of all of that, you feel that you can't get, get over even your own sin. Does that describe where some of you are today? There's that great excitement in the beginning and you say, I'm going to make disciples, and yet you realize that it's much more difficult than you thought. Or maybe you get together with your small group and you have a, a great discussion about addressing the issues of your neighborhood. You talk to your friends and you are ready to take on racism and poverty and addiction. But the next time your small group gathers, you realize no one has done anything about it. And you just feel overwhelmed with the systemic dysfunction in your community and you don't even know where to start. Have you felt like that? There's that great resolve, right? Great excitement. You feel like you're on your way to to make a difference for God and then a week goes by and, and you feel that you haven't made any progress. Whether you are rebuilding your own lives or restoring your church or bringing renewal to your community, we need to learn how to deal with that kind of discouragement. We need to learn how not to quit, how to persevere over a long period of time, how to overcome obstacles to genuine, lasting renewal. That's what we're talking about this morning. We're looking at the experience of the exiles in Jerusalem, but we're relating all of that to our own lives, our church, and our community. So here's my sermon in a sentence. Josh and I have been trying to, to summarize our sermons to, to really help us focus on what we're trying to communicate. Here it is. In order to experience genuine renewal... We must learn to overcome obstacles along the way. In order for us to experience genuine renewal, we must learn to overcome obstacles along the way. So my outline is very simple. It only has two points, which, like I always say, it doesn't mean the sermon is going to be any shorter, but there are only two points. <laughs> We're going to first look at what, what hinders Renewal. What are the obstacles? What hinders renewal? And secondly, what helps renewal? So we're going to dive in and examine what the, the obstacles are and then see how we can overcome them with God's help. Now, if you're a reader of Christian theology or if you've just been in church long enough, you've heard this classification. Christians over the centuries have defined the enemies of the soul, the enemies of the Christian, as the devil the flesh, and the world. That's a sort of a classic understanding of what stands in our way. What are the obstacles? The devil, the world, and the flesh. So I'm going to use this as a frame of reference 
as we look at Ezra 4 and 5 and see how it might help us understand this passage and understand what our obstacles may be. Let's start with the devil first, or a particular enemy of the exiles, a particular enemy of the Christians. Look at Ezra 4, verse 1. This is how it starts, the story of the opposition in the land. Ezra 4, 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, the adversaries, there's already enemies in the land. There were certain people that, who personally opposed the rebuilding of the temple and the city. There were people, there were particular enemies. There were specific persons who decided to, to get in the way of this rebuilding project. I mentioned they were the Samaritans, the people of the land. And of course, they lived there. They were not thrilled that the Jews were coming back. The rest of Ezra and Nehemiah shows that the opposition from the Samaritans lasted all the way until the city was rebuilt, decades and decades later. Even in the New Testament, as you read about the Samaritans, there's still this animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now these people, these particular enemies had various strategies. I'd like to, to show you how varied their strategies, their tactics were. For example, Ezra 4, verses 4 and 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Now, what, what is that? It's ongoing intimidation. They were constantly putting pressure on them, constantly trying to scare them, trying to discourage them from Rebuilding and it worked. They stopped building. Reading on, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. Well, now they used other people of influence, people in authority, and bribed them to be on their side and not on the side of the Jews so the laws would not be followed. The sixth verse, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Now they're resorting to slander and deception. They're writing to the king and they're making all sorts of excuses for why this construction has to stop. Ezra 4.23 They went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Now there's just physical force. They're stopping them with weapons and, and, and violence. One commentator remarked, Nothing that is attempted for God will now go unchallenged, and scarcely a tactic be unexplored by the opposition. Now my point here is that there were particular enemies in the land that used various strategies to hinder God's work of renewal in Jerusalem. Now, in the life of a Christian, in my life and in your life, there also is a particular enemy, a particular person and persons who use various tactics to thwart God's work in our lives. He is commonly called Satan or the devil, the accuser of the brethren. He has a number of other spiritual beings under his control and they are dispatched to oppose God's work. Now, I know, I know that when we talk about the devil, 
It sounds weird. I understand that. It sounds archaic, right? Nobody really believes in that kind of superstitious stuff anymore. But Scripture is clear on that. The Bible describes His existence, His activities. It describes lots of demonic stuff happening in the world. Now, we all met Christians who like to blame all their problems on some demonic interference, right? I I knew someone in my church in Chicago who, if he didn't get my email, it was the devil's fault, quite literally. (laughs) Probably Gmail, but maybe. We don't know. Maybe the devil. So there is a way to to attribute anything bad in your life to the devil directly. And, and, and I think it's harmful to the Christian. I think you can, you can focus too much on the devil and the demonic. I think you can become preoccupied, and that's all you think about, and that's all you fight against, and that sort of becomes the center of your Christian life. I, I think it's, it's bad. But I think there's another extreme, and another extreme is just to not think about the devil at all and completely disregard and ignore his activities and his existence. Now, if you are a Christian that is skeptical about the devil, if you fall into that extreme and you just really don't give much thought to him or or demons or that kind of activity, I'd like to challenge that belief. And I'd like to ask you to consider that if you believe in God, and you do believe in God, you believe that there is a person who is good, there's good personified. Is it really that far of a stretch to believe that there's evil personified as well? Why shouldn't we trust that the scriptures are right as they are about God and who God is and as they are about the devil and who he is and the demons and who they are? Listen to Ephesians 6, verse 10 and 11. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What is Paul saying? He says we need to stand against the schemes of the devil, the tactics, the strategies of our enemy. And we can only do that in the strength of our God. In fact, we need His strength to oppose the devil. We can't do it in our own power. This is a pretty serious command here from the apostle. Saying, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in His strength. Put on His armor so you can oppose the devil. So you can understand the schemes, the tactics, the strategies that He employs and go against Him and survive and succeed in your battle with Him. The question is, Do we today in our modern, postmodern age, in a church like our church, do we understand the devil's schemes? Do we know how he tempts the Christian? As you look at the obstacles to God's work of renewal in your own life, and maybe you feel discouraged and you feel guilty and you feel tired, could it be that the devil is at work? It could be. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but it could be. Are we open to that possibility that the devil or, or one of his servants is involved directly with you by tempting you? 
What I'm driving at is a, is, is a greater awareness of the spiritual conflict that we are engaged in by definition. By being a Christian, you're part of it. You're involved in a cosmic war between good and evil, between God and the devil. Now, such an awareness must inform how we pray, how we plan, how we interpret what happens around us and in our own church. That's the first enemy of the soul, is the devil, a particular person. Now, secondly, there is the world, a harmful environment. There are two instances of this kind of influence on the returned exiles. Now, first look at Ezra 4, verse 2. The Samaritans come and, and they ask to join the work of rebuilding the temple. Now, on the surface, this looks like a, a great idea. They come and they say, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. Well, they didn't actually worship God as the Jews did. The Samaritans had a syncretistic understanding of religion. Remember, it's a mixture of all sorts of ethnic groups. It's a mixture of all sorts of religious allegiances. And so their religion accommodated all sorts of views. And so when they come to the Jews, the Samaritans say, we are just like you. Why don't we join in with you and build with you? It sounds great. Except that the Jews know that their influence is going to be harmful to them. That if they make that alliance, they will start seeing God the way the Samaritans do. They will move away from the exclusive loyalty to Yahweh, to the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. And now they're going to allow all sorts of other commitments to other deities. And so the Jews, they see this as a multi-faith proposition. As other people are coming and saying, we worship God like you do, but we also worship other gods, so why don't we join in? And the Jews say, uh-uh, no. We only worship God. And what's going to happen is that our community, our life, our religion is going to get destroyed from within. Once we join hands with people like you that have this kind of worldview, we too will embrace this worldview. So what's happening here is a conflict of worldviews. One is this syncretistic, accommodating worldview, and another is exclusive worldview. They're very different. And although on the surface you might think, well, why not join forces and build something together? The Jews see deep into it and they're saying that that's not how it works. We are not going to do that because that's going to mean a destruction of our faith. That's one example of how the world, this environment that is harmful spiritually to the Jews is, is coming into their work. Now secondly, look at Ezra 5. Now here we have a local Persian official, Tatanai, who simply inquires into the legitimacy of the rebuilding project. Now this is after chapter 4. In chapter 4 you had the initial confrontation and then they wrote to the king and all that kind of stuff happened. And then in chapter 5, this is 15 years later. The work had stopped and now they're resuming work again. They're, they're starting to build again. And another official, this is a new guy, 
sees the Jews rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple, and he comes and asks on whose authority they are doing that. I don't see that this official is particularly against the Jews. He's simply part of a bureaucracy that is not favorable towards the exercise of true religion. You see, part of the problem in rebuilding the temple was the difficulty in communication. They're far away from, from Persia. And so to get any, anything done, you have to check with the king and you have to write to the court and then they have to respond and documents get misplaced and new kings come into power and new officials get, get appointed. All of that takes time. All of that brings confusion. And when you're trying to just do what God tells you to do, you realize that you're not in an environment that is conducive for that kind of work. There's all sorts of things happening around you that make it, that make it difficult for you to do what God wants you to do. The Jews lived in an environment like that. If it wasn't hostile to the exercise of their faith, at the very least it was not favorable. We too live in an environment like that. That's what Scripture calls the world. When you read about the world and the negative influence of the world in Scripture, it, it really it means that environment, that structure, that system of values, that society that is, that is organized around the principles that are opposing God. That's what the world is, biblically. Now, I know that for many of us, we think of a different definition of the world. When we talk about being worldly, what do we mean often? The old fundamentalist definition. You go dancing. Uh-huh. You hang out with those people that, that smoke, chew tobacco, that drink socially. And then you play cards with them. Dominoes, even. <laughs> you wear certain clothes that that might get you into sin, maybe. That's, that's the old definition of what the world is, that is common in our kinds of churches. That is not a biblical definition. That's not accurate. That's not what the world is. It's much worse than that. <laughs> if you thought that all you had to do was just stay away from dancing, and you'd be fine, no, it's much worse. What are we dealing with here? We're dealing with principles and values. We're dealing with structures and social norms that are all set against God. They're, they're, they're organized and built in rejection of God's will and God's law. That's what the world is. We live in this world. So all around us are values and principles and norms that are not conducive to the exercise of true religion. To be worldly in the biblical understanding is not to go to the movies or to dance. It's to treasure and pursue things other than God in opposition to God, in rejection of God. This is why when John talks about the world, he talks about loving the world. Because that's how bad it is. It's about love, it's about your heart, it's about your affections, it's about what you like, what you value. Listen to 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For a Christian, the challenge is not to conform to the values of the world, but to live a life in opposition to those values. So a proud Christian is a worldly Christian. A greedy Christian is a worldly Christian. A lazy Christian is a worldly Christian. An oppressive or abusive Christian is a worldly Christian. And you can be all those things without ever touching a deck of cards, without ever busting a move. You can do all those things. And you can look like a church-going person, dressed the way you're supposed to be dressed, and yet be worldly. The Samaritans came to the Jews with a multi-faith proposition. This is the same proposition that our culture makes to us. How many Christians have bought into this idea that there are many ways to God? That we can't tell anyone what to believe or how to live. That we must be careful not to offend anyone's religious sensibilities. That's the world. A multi-faith proposition to us. They're saying, it's fine if you worship God. We worship God like you do. But we also worship other things. And as long as you're okay with that, you're welcome. And many Christians have bought into that. And they have stopped sharing the gospel. Because they've bought into a worldly value, a worldly principle, And that work of renewal that God wants to do through them is now stopped. It's done. They're not doing anything. The Jews lived in an environment where it was much easier to stop building the temple, to stop worshiping God, to stop obeying the law. Everything around them told them that it's okay to live differently, not like the way God wants you to live. Now, we live in the same environment, don't we? It's difficult. To practice your faith, it's just difficult. Our culture, the world around us, is not built for that. And so, our culture mocks us when we make an exclusive commitment to Christ, when we show up at church on Sunday morning. Our culture tells us, the world tells us, it's okay to have a consumeristic attitude towards worship. If you don't like something, just go find another place to worship at. Right? The world tells us that that you don't have to submit to God-given leadership in the church. That sounds like oppression. Don't do that. Go to a church where nothing is demanded of you. That's the way of the world. That's a worldly value that has now become a church value in many, many congregations. So we put spiritual disciplines on the back burner. We don't really commit to a church. We don't commit to Christ. And we live as worldly people. That is the world's influence. So when we talk about bringing renewal to our community, 
Can it be that one of the reasons why our community is in such a state that it is, is that Christians do not differ in their values from non-Christians? Think about it. How, How can we fight against racism in our own community if our churches are more segregated than our community is? At some point, we have accepted the world's value. And we have organized our lives according to that. And now, when there's a crisis in our community, when the media tells us, well, we better start addressing those issues, we come and we say, I I don't know if we have anything to say. Because we've lived just like our community has lived. How can we fight against, against poverty when many Christians are bent on accumulating wealth and possessions. And what authority do we have to speak to those issues if we are just as materialistic as, as many of our neighbors? Now look at the response of the leaders, leaders of the Jews to the Samaritans. This is Ezra 4.3. They know what the Samaritans are proposing. They know that they're saying, if you build with us, it's going to be much easier for you, but your faith is going to be different. Your life is going to be different. So they respond, verse 3, you have nothing to do with us. You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. To our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. That should be our response too. We should say we have nothing to do with the world. We will not accept its values or principles. We will not make excuses for giving into its influence. We will not use the world's strategies to achieve God's goals. We will love God and not the world. Well, the third one, the last enemy, the last obstacle, is the flesh or uncooperative heart. By the flesh, I mean the sinful nature that makes excuses and keeps the person from pursuing God. If you look at the beginning of Ezra 5, you will see that after 15 years of opposition, the returned Jews settled into an attitude of inactivity. They gave up. They lost the passion for the rebuilding of the temple. That's the very reason they came back and focused on their own prosperity. So God raised a couple prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to remind the people of their priorities. Haggai 1, verses 3 and 4 say, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. This is what God says to his people. He says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? God says, You've made your life comfortable, but the temple lies in ruins. So somewhere in those 15 years, though they were opposed from outside... Now there's a new opposition that is rising from within them, from their own hearts. They have refocused, and now they've started to live for themselves. They stopped serving God. They've neglected the whole reason why they were there, and they started living for themselves. So they started making their lives comfortable, their houses paneled, right? Pretty, nice. They focused on their own well-being, on their own prosperity, and neglected the work of the Lord. That is what it means to live according to the flesh. Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. 
for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there's something within us, the old sinful nature, that is moving us away from God, that is, that is perhaps the greatest obstacle on the way to renewal and restoration, whether it's in our lives, in our church, or in our community. When I think about these three enemies, right, the devil, a person who's against us, the world, the environment that's around us, that it's not conducive to spiritual growth, and my own heart, the flesh, to me, in my own experience, my own heart is the greatest obstacle by far. In my own life, I, don't, I, I can't speak for you, but for me, I don't need the devil in the world to fail. I can do it all by myself if I just follow my own heart, as Disney told, tells me to do. I just need to follow my own heart and everything falls apart. Because there's enough evil in my own heart to make all sorts of excuses why I'm not praying, why I'm not reading the scriptures, why I'm not serving, why I'm not sharing the gospel, why I'm not doing things I'm supposed to do in my community. All that stuff comes out of my own heart. And so to me, when I get inspired and I decide, I'm, I resolve to, to pursue this new life of renewal and restoration and follow what God tells me to do, my own heart is often the greatest obstacle. The old theologians talked about the sinful nature and serving yourself, living according to the flesh, as being bent, as being curved in on yourself, as being bent towards the earth. It's a different orientation. And so something has to happen to straighten us up, to change us, to make us look at God again, to make us to capture our emotions, to capture our affections so we can do what God wants us to do because we want to do that now. Something has to happen, so what is it? Well, let's work through the things that help us to overcome those obstacles. We'll start with the flesh. we kind of go in the reverse order here. So what helps us overcome the flesh, my own heart? It is the Word of God. God has to speak into my heart for me to change. Look at Ezra 5, verses 1, 1 and 2. This is after 15 years of passivity. God sends his prophets, these two men, and they speak to God's people. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. What changed? Why, at one point, they were serving themselves and building their own houses, and then they rose up and started building the temple again? What was what's the difference? God spoke to his people. God sent two prophets that spoke directly into that situation and confronted the people with their sin, with their own flesh, and saying... The temple lies in ruins and you're building your houses. Consider your ways, Haggai said. And so they considered their ways and under the authority of God's word, under the power that, that came to them through the preaching and the proclamation of these two prophets, a change happened. And they renewed the efforts to rebuild the temple. Matthew Henry the Great 
Puritan commentator says, it is the business of God's prophets to stir up God's people to that which is good and to help them in it, to strengthen their hands and by suitable considerations fetch from the Word of God to quicken them to their duty and encourage them in it. That is the job of the prophet. To come and speak to us God's Word and say, consider your ways. What are you doing? You have followed your flesh, you have followed your heart, and now look, the work of God lies in ruins. How can we overcome the obstacles on the way to renewal? We must hear from God Himself. It's God's Word that reorients our heart, that engages our will, that encourages us to keep going. Friends, how good it is of God to send prophets to us and preachers and Bible teachers to speak God's Word to us. How good it is of God to command us to gather every Sunday to hear from His Word. I know for some of you it seems like an obligation and a duty, but I'd like you to look at it from a different perspective. If that is what you need to change, if your flesh is so powerful that it is constantly pulling you away from God, isn't that good of God to set these sorts of patterns in our lives? How good is it of God to give us His book and say, here, read it. Anytime you want, read it and you can hear from me directly. It is wonderful that God has done that for us, for His people. God knows much better than we do how difficult it is for us to overcome our own flesh. And so God says, here are the means. Go to church. Listen to the preaching of the gospel. Open your Bible Read my word and hear from me. Go to a Bible study. Listen to a lesson from me. God has done all of that for us so we would change. So we would overcome this obstacle on the way to renewal. So if you are discouraged today, if you have given into your flesh and have neglected God and His work in your life, if you have made certain decisions and have not followed through, and now you're feeling guilty, if you have settled for spiritual passivity, just doing the minimum, hear the word of the Lord this morning. I am your prophet this morning. I'm your huckleberry. Listen, listen to what I'm telling you. Change. Respond to God's word. I understand that you are discouraged. I understand that you are tired. But get up and start building again. Get up. Get going. Come on. Do it. God is is ready to do an amazing work of renewal in, in your life. What's stopping that work is your flesh. That flesh is conquered by the Word of God. And so God is speaking to you and He says, begin afresh. Don't look back. Press on. Look forward. Obey what God is telling you this morning. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Start walking in step with the Spirit.
Have you neglected the reading of the Bible? Get back into it. Start reading again. Do it tonight. Do it tomorrow morning. Get into a habit of interacting with God's Word. Have you not been praying? Start praying again. Do it. That's the Word of the Lord for you this morning. Have you not been serving? Just preoccupied with your own needs. Find your role. Find your place. Have you not been sharing the gospel with others? Open your mouth and speak. The Lord is speaking to you this morning. This is God's way of forcing you to deal with your flesh and to overcome that. That's one means. God's word helps us overcome obstacles. Secondly, it's the presence of God that helps us overcome the world's influence. By recognizing that the world is, is, that that the Lord is present in the world that we are in, even though the environment is not conducive for spiritual growth and for, for the work of renewal, God is in that environment with us. Ezra 5, verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So they're waiting for the king to tell them that they could keep rebuilding, but they keep rebuilding until they hear. Why? Because the eye of their God was on them. They recognize that God is with them, that it's God who's overseeing this work. And so they didn't stop building. They kept going They overcame discouragement. They overcame the obstacles and the opposition and the conflicts and the bureaucracy. And they kept doing what God told them to do. They were in the world, but so was the Lord. God spoke through His prophet in Haggai 2, verses 4 and 5. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when, I, when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. God says, work, because I'm with you. My spirit is in your midst. Don't be scared. Yes, everything around you tells you you should stop working. But I am with you. I will help you. God promises to be with His people. Wherever God calls you, He will go with you. Whatever task God gives you, He will stir up in you a desire to accomplish it. And should you get discouraged or scared or tired, His Spirit, His own Spirit, God Himself, will be there to motivate you to keep going. Do you recognize that even though the world is against you, God is for you and God is with you? There's this this old story about Athanasius. Athanasius was, was was a pastor in Egypt and... And he led this effort in the church to 
to make sure that the church believed that Jesus was God. And so it was a great theological controversy, several councils and a lot of political maneuvers in it. And there was a time when it seemed that everybody was against Athanasius. And Athanasius said one time, he said, well, I guess if the world is against Athanasius, then it's Athanasius against the world. Why? Why, why? How could he say that? Because he knew that what he believed, what he taught the church, was God's word. He couldn't give it up. And that God was on his side, even though the world is against him. God is for him and God is with him. Then there's the power of God. So we've looked at the word of God conquering our flesh, the presence of God conquering the world, and finally the power of God conquering the devil. When this official, when Tad and I asked on whose authority the Jews began building again, before they mentioned the king's decree, which is important here, this is what they say, Ezra 5, verse 11. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. He says, on whose authority are you doing that? And they say, we are the servants of of the God of heaven and earth. This is where our authority ultimately comes from. We serve God who is in charge of heaven and earth. I don't think we've left anything out here. God is in charge of everything there is because he made all that there is. And we are his servants. We're doing his bidding. We're fulfilling his will. It is his command for us to build this temple. And whatever the particular enemies, human or demonic, are threatening to do. We know that we are serving this kind of God, this powerful God, and His authority and power are much greater than anything else. So if you feel like you are about to get destroyed by the devil, remember that God is on your side. It's a very simple truth. Remember that God is for you. God is on your side. Remember that you are a servant, no, a child of God. Who's going to go against him and achieve any sort of success? There's no one greater than God, and God has committed to help you, to protect you, to rescue you, and to use you for his glory. Apostle John reminds us in 1 John 4, verse 4, little children... You are from God and have overcome them. Antichrist, he's talking about. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. God who is in you, God who is with you, God who is for you, is greater than your enemy in the world. And so we hold on to that truth. Even in the midst of temptation, even in the midst of your life falling apart and you see how the devil is just destroying everything you love, please remember, God is with you and God is for you. And finally, all these things that help us, God's word, God's presence, God's power, those things that help us overcome these obstacles on the way to renewal and restoration, we can place all of them under the umbrella of God's grace. You see his communication to us, his presence with us, his power on our behalf are all given to us by grace. 
We don't deserve God's help. God commands us to do something and we fail. God doesn't need to do anything else for us. And yet he does. God continues to encourage us. God continues to help us. He continues to to pick us up and set us again on the way to renewal and restoration. Why? Because he is gracious. We simply call it grace. This This is God's understanding of how he works with us. This is God's way of dealing with us is by grace, not based on our accomplishments, but by grace, because he is a loving and merciful God. Augustine put it really well. He says, Augustine said, grace is my favorite subject. And he wrote a lot. He says, for what ought to be more attractive to us sick men than grace? Grace by which we are healed. For us lazy men than grace, grace by which we are stirred up. For us men longing to act than grace by which we are helped. All of that comes down to our experience of God's grace. The grace of His Word, the grace of His presence, the grace of His power, all of that is given to us by grace. And all of that grace is concentrated in His Son. How do I know God is going to help me? He gave me Jesus. How do I know God can do this great work of renewal in my life? I know that because I know Jesus. All of that, all that I've talked about, all this help, all that God gives us to help us overcome the obstacles, the renewal and the restoration that comes in our lives and in our church and in our community, all of that comes through Jesus. I had a great time in Ukraine and God graciously allowed me to witness to many people. It's wonderful. Certainly to my dad and my brother and and other friends, but but random people, or what I thought were random people, people that, that shared my dad's room in the hospital, grown men cried because they don't know what's coming. They know there's a surgery tomorrow and they have no hope. And so a man cried, scared. Now some of them approached me and asked me to pray for them because they know I'm the pastor in the room and you know all that. So, so they come to me and I'm grateful for that. And so... I got to talk to them and share the gospel with them and pray with them and encourage them and direct them towards God through Christ. And one of the points I made and kept making is I'm saying it's great to pray. It's good to hope that God will help you, but you have to go to God through Christ. There's no other way. Why would God help you unless you come to him through Christ? And so at a different time, this one man came to me and he says, do you mind if we pray? I have surgery tomorrow. Do you mind if we pray together? And so we prayed, and he prayed. This is the first time I heard him pray in his own words. It was a very simple, childlike prayer. And I felt like he got it. What I told him the night before seemed to make sense to him, because this is how he prayed. He prayed, Jesus, please tell your dad to help me. He said, I know I can only come to you through Christ. So Jesus, please talk to the Father so he can help me so I can be here for my children. This is the prayer. It got off track a little bit later, but at that time, at that time, it seemed like he got it. Because the gospel is simple like that. 
We come to God and we ask Him to help us. Why? Because we come to Him through Jesus. Because it is in Jesus that the Word of God comes to us. He is the complete revelation and communication of God. I wouldn't know what God is like if I didn't have Jesus. And so it's Jesus that speaks to us. It's Jesus that straightens us up. It's Jesus that reorients my heart. When I look at the cross, I look up. I can no longer look down. I am no longer bending down to the ground. The cross forces me to look away from myself and towards God. It raises my gaze towards heaven. His blood, the blood of Jesus, speaks a better word to us. A word of hope, a word of freedom, a word of joy, a word of liberty to us. So as I am wrestling with my own heart, and I, I do wrestle with my own heart all the time, and I fail many times, and I've learned that the only way I can overcome my own heart is if I think about Jesus. If I think of Him, and I think of what He has done for me, if I meditate on the cross, if I remember again that He became a human being for me to be with me, that He lived a life that is perfect, that I can't live, but He did it on my behalf, that He suffered and died in my place, so I don't have to suffer and die, and that He rose again from the dead, and now offers this different kind of life to me, even now, certainly in eternity, but even now, when I think about that, that allows me to overcome my own heart. That pushes me over the edge. It tells me, yeah, I think I can overcome this obstacle. I think I can recommit to this work of renewal in my own life. Jesus said in John 16, in the world you, have, you will have tribulation. See, the world is not conducive for spiritual life. But take heart. I have overcome the world. What a, what a great promise. Jesus says, I know that the way you live in the place that you live in, the society and culture that you live in, it's hard. You're going to get persecuted. You're going to get tribulation and opposition and conflict because everybody else doesn't believe the way you do. Everybody else has a different understanding of who God is. But Jesus says, take heart. Because I have overcome the world. You can be in the world and you can still live differently. You don't have to conform to the world. You can live in a way that is countercultural to what the world believes. Jesus lived in the same environment that we live. And yet, he didn't live according to its values and principles. The world couldn't change him. But Jesus changed the world forever. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. By his death and resurrection, Jesus proclaimed himself to be a powerful Savior. He triumphed over Satan and all his servants. So when devil comes to me and is tempting me, all I need to do is say, I am a servant of Jesus. Remember? The one who beat you. That's the one I am serving. That's the one I'm related to. I don't need to be afraid. There's a greater authority in play here. There's a greater power in play. 
You've already had a run-in with him. That's who I serve. As you think about your life and your church, and we're going to come to communion in a minute, and I know that it's hard. It's hard to keep going. It's hard to wrestle with guilt and shame and failed resolutions. It's hard to get up and start again. But that is exactly what I am encouraging you to do today. I know that many of you have tried and failed. Many of us are in the midst of being gripped by guilt and saying, I don't think I can ever be the kind of Christian that God wants me to be. I don't think I can ever find my place in the church. I don't think I can ever have anything positive to say or do to my neighbors. Well, the Word of God comes to you and says it's not true. God can use you. God can change you. Today, God can do that. He is with you, and He is powerful enough to help you overcome all those obstacles, the devil, the world, and even your flesh. So it's with those thoughts that if you are a believer, if you're a Christian, I want you to come to the table. And what do we see at the table? We see Jesus. We see grace concentrated and personified here at the table. And just as this, this bread and the cup nourishes you, and symbolically nourishes your spirit and nourishes your faith, Jesus is coming into your life. If you're a believer, this is for your encouragement. We take communion to once again be reminded of who Jesus is, to refocus on Him, to learn again that we can overcome those obstacles. So if you're a Christian, I ask you to repent, confess your sins, acknowledge your failure, and then come, get up again, and come to the table. If you're not a Christian, I would ask you not to come to this table. Don't pretend. Don't just go through the motions. But take Jesus. Take Him now. Take Him today as your powerful and present Savior who speaks into your life right now. Hear that word and accept the gospel. Let's pray. As I pray, Please pray with me and then the musicians will come up and they will sing and you can come forward. You can take communion up front here and leave the cup, the empty cup here in the basket or you can take it back to your seats if you want more time to reflect, to confess, to repent, to rejoice. If you're unable to come forward, uh, please just raise your hand. One of the elders will bring communion to you. If you're in the balconies, there is communion served right there for you so you don't have to come down just go forward where you are and take communion there. Let's pray together. Father, we, we praise you. We praise you that you are the God that does wor the work of renewal and restoration in our lives. Well, we believe that you want to work in our hearts, in our families, in our friendships, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our city. We know that you are the kind of God that brings freshness and newness and restoration to us. We are hopeful people because you are a God who works, a God who changes things, a God who revives things. We know because you have revived us from death. We were dead and you brought us into life. You made us your children. You gave us the power to overcome all these obstacles in our lives. So Lord, I pray 
for encouragement. I pray that the Holy Spirit would come and encourage your people. That He would convince them that there is hope, that they can change, that their flesh is not an obstacle that cannot be overcome, that the devil is not too powerful for them to conquer, that the world is something we can remain in and yet still live differently. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us all that by your Holy Spirit, that you would change us so we can live differently. And for those of us who are wrestling with guilt and look back and feel like we have wasted weeks and days and years, I pray that you would remove that guilt and replace it with hope. Replace it with a fresh motivation to keep going, not to quit, to persevere, to continue on the way of renewal. We remember, Lord, that it is the Holy Spirit who changes us. So we pray for His happen. The Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself.